The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. On the Africa side, you know, the, the domestic demand somewhat varies. But I would argue that it's kind of... Um, mostly uh, held together by a general interest in applying surveillance for developmental purposes. I am Eugenia Lohtri, Lawfare's Fellow in Technology Policy and Law, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 26, 2023. Countries across Africa are procuring and employing surveillance tools from China. This trend is a product of China's diplomatic strategy its technological ambitions, and growing corporate power and reach, as well as African domestic demands. A white paper from the Digital Forensic Research Lab at the Atlantic Council argues that research on this topic disproportionately focuses on the motivations and ambitions of the supplier, and seeks instead to focus on the local features that drive the adoption of Chinese surveillance tools. I sat down with Bulalani Jili, the author of the white paper. Bulalani is a fellow at the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative and a meta-research PhD fellow at Harvard University. We discuss the supply and demand drivers for surveillance technology in Africa, the risks to civil liberties that come from the deployment of these technologies without proper checks and balances, and how all this fits in the context of U.S.-China competition. It's the Lawfare Podcast for June 26, Bulalani Jili on Africa's demand for and adoption of Chinese surveillance technologies. So, Bulalani, to get us started, could you give us a bit of a kind of scene setter and talk us through kind of briefly, um, what does China's surveillance ecosystem look like and how has it spread beyond its borders? Sure. When we're thinking uh, about uh, Chinese uh, surveillance systems, particularly domestically, it's important to think of it as kind of a, a layered arrangement. And by that, I mean, there are multiple surveillance systems in operation to support uh, domestic uh, surveillance operations. And so that includes both, you know, traditional CCTV and facial recognition systems that have been consistently used across the urban landscape to both surveil citizens, but also to support the identification of citizens. And then there are other ways of kind of surveilling uh, citizens. And that includes like the use of kind of uh, biometrical data collection. And so, you know, that will include effectively the collection of citizenry's data, 
for the purposes of, you know, surveilling those citizens. And then uh, another kind of uh, popular and well-known means of doing it is also the surveilling of online activity. And obviously this includes what people have known as the kind of Great China War, with, which is, you know, about keeping out information from China, but also enabling the kind of observation of Sindri's um, engagement with, uh, you know, online speech or use of certain products made available online. And so, you know, when you are thinking about at least uh, surveillance in China, it's most appropriate to think about an arrangement of surveilling operations that enable the tracking of individual engagement online and offline. And when when we're thinking about its corporate activities abroad, it's important to note that the surveillance capabilities of the Chinese state are greatly related to the corporations that have enabled uh, that capability. And that in, you know, includes in a range of, uh, of companies domestically from kind of large known companies to sometimes small start-up companies. And many of these companies are now expanding their geopolitical footprint beyond that of Beijing. And uh, what they're now doing is that they're now offering some of these uh, tools to multiple uh, stakeholders, both at the state level, but also at the sub-state level. And that these individual countries procuring, you know, these multiple surveillance systems for their own kind of domestic purposes. So you recently wrote a paper on Africa's demand and adoption of Chinese surveillance technology. And before we dive into the specifics of that paper, I, I did want to ask you about kind of your motivation for writing this paper. Why did you choose to focus on the demand aspect here? Sure. It's partly motivated by some of the current writings on uh, China's growing uh, geopolitical footprints, and in particular, its kind of growing technical capabilities. And so if you kind of look into the landscape of uh, cybersecurity research and kind of cybersecurity efforts, uh, what is clear is that there was a general growing sense of some of the challenges that are occurring domestically in Beijing in terms of the targeting, for example, of Uyghurs and how that kind of, say, oppression or at the very least this kind of grown activity of surveillance in Xinjiang is contingent on some of the technical capabilities that have been allowed by private firms. And when we particularly then focused on some of the challenges of the dissemination of these technologies into global South markets, what became very clear is that the literature and also the general public discussion was thinking of the proliferation of these technologies as simply a consequence of supply side drivers, i.e. it is, you know, Beijing and its companies that are promoting these technologies for, you know, uh, Beijing's domestic and foreign policy aims. And while that might be partly true, in the sense that we can think a bit about, you know, um, the ambitions of individual companies that are selling these uh, technologies, or Beijing's uh, relationship with some of these companies, 
we then also lost sight of why do some of these individual African countries or Southeast Asian countries or, you know, Eastern European countries are working with Chinese companies in order to kind of bolster their own surveillance capabilities. And so in some sense, the project was really interested in animating local agency as an alternative, uh, say, a numerical variable within the research to kind of capture what is going on both at the local level as a way to think critically about what's going on on the ground while simultaneously also helping us uh, offer uh, a more complicated narrative about what's going on at the global level. And so in some sense, it was really about trying to complicate the discussion while simultaneously also an attempt to uh, to keep track of the significance of local agency. I have to agree. I, I think this is a great contribution to the discussion. So I, I do encourage everyone who's listening to to go read the report. I, I do think we need to get started with maybe an explainer. What is the current status maybe of the adoption of Chinese technology in Africa? You know, what are, you, you hinted at this before, you mentioned some of the technologies and some of the actors, but if you could expand a bit of what are the technologies that are being deployed, what do these systems involve, and who is interested, who is purchasing this technology? Sure. Um, this is obviously a very complicated and entangled question, and so I'll try and, you know, deal with it piece by piece and, you know, please stop me at any particular point for further questions. And so, you know, I initially started uh, by saying that, you know, China's surveillance operations are layered in the sense that they are, you know, multiple systems uh, that are working in congruence to support uh, state surveillance. In the context of Africa, what you know, generally notice is that the surveillance operations are more hybridized. And by that, I mean, they are, you know, uh, very much uh, dispersed and they are very much entangled. And so, for example, in the context of, say, Kenya, what you notice is that the Kenyan state has been working with Huawei for several years to kind of support domestic surveillance operations. And that means that they've supported them both in installing you know, basic CCTV cameras, but also facial recognition systems that allow the police to be able to identify faces, but also to kind of track uh, movement. And that will include, you know, vehicle movement, for example. And and so those systems are in part responding to, you know, domestic ambitions. You know, from the Kenya side, they are really interested in bolstering the surveillance capabilities to really deal with uh, a series of challenges, but the general challenges set at issues surrounding crime and terror. Uh, If you particularly look into the history of uh, uh, surveillance systems in Kenya, you see a spike in the procurement of these systems after uh, challenges with kind of terrorist attacks from 2013. And so in some sense, you note that the issue of surveillance uh, was really a response to a domestic challenge. At another level, uh, what is quite difficult to ascertain is whether or not some of these surveillance systems have actually supported some of these domestic ambitions like curbing crime. And 
what I've kind of pointed to within my own personal work is that they've actually not supported the amelioration of crime, but they do inspire other kinds of challenges. And those challenges in particular sit at issues surrounding the promotion of the responsible use of AI, but also the promotion of civil liberties. And then again, you know, getting back to the uh, to the point about the technologies. So the, the technologies also range from, you know, offering, for example, a facial recognition system, but that system might be operating, for example, on Oracle software. And so, you know, these systems are not completely vertically integrated with the use of simply Chinese suppliers, but, you know, they are integrated with other technologies that are sourced from elsewhere. And so, you know, African governments, and in particular Kenya, seem to be procuring the surveillance system from multiple suppliers that that include Chinese suppliers, but also other Western suppliers. So un- understanding that there are domestic differences, right? What are maybe some of the general takeaways in terms of the drivers for demand that you see? You know, what are the maybe regional similarities, but also maybe differences between the countries in in why they're looking for this type of technology? So, you know, first kind of getting back to some of the domestic factors, but also some of the supply factors, what is clear, at least from the Beijing side of the equation is that at one level, they're interested in, you know, supporting the kind of the corporate expansion of some of the companies abroad. Um, And that is bestly indexed by some of the loans that these companies get to kind of expand into kind of African markets to sell their technologies. At one level, it's also kind of connected to how, for example, the the Chinese state promotes the use of facial recognition systems and more generally smart city systems as an ameliorant to traditional challenges surrounding development. And this is kind of best indexed by some of the, you know, meeting notes that you'll find at, you know, bilateral relation meetings with, you know, China and its African counterparts. You'd also see this also kind of multilateral institutions like FOCAC, which is the kind of the main Africa-China multilateral institution where you'd see some of, you know, Beijing's promotion of its technologies. And then at another level, you also see kind of cooperation at the kind of police training uh, between, you know, Beijing and, you know, its African counterpart, whether, you know, it's, for example, in the case of South Africa, where, you know, the local police were kind of sent to Shanghai to kind of think more about how to best utilize uh, CCTV camera and other kind of surveillance means for kind of domestic policing purposes. And so from their end, there's a kind of a clear motivation behind promoting some of these systems, but also some of, say, the the normative inclinations of surveillance as, a, as, a, as an ameliorant to traditional challenges uh, surrounding political stability and policing and so forth. On the Africa side, you know, the, the domestic demand somewhat varies, but I would argue that it's kind of um, mostly uh, held together by a general interest in applying surveillance 
for developmental purposes. And so both, I'd argue, uh, digital surveillance and digital infrastructure comes under the banner of development as a means to address traditional problems in in the developmental space. And what obviously one of those uh, challenges is matters of public security. And so uh, in the context of, say, Kenya or South Africa, usually these technologies are being procured either by the state or sub-state actor, mostly like the local police or the city police who are interested in utilizing them to address crime in, in, in an area of the city that they believe to be particularly challenging. In the kind of context of Kenya, which would be a bit different from South Africa, particularly as relates to the use of these surveillances, in Kenya, there will be a huge emphasis on how they can kind of solve challenges surrounding terror. Obviously, the use of these system one presumes that they can actually ameliorate some of these challenges. And what I've argued in my work is that there's no direct correlation between the adoption for an AI facial recognition and surveillance system with the reduction of crime, for example. But also the you know, challenge for the adoption of these systems simply sits at the absence of the necessary checks and balances for their use. And because uh, that the uh, the speed of adoption of these systems sometimes uh, lags the, or at least underscores the lag of the appropriate response in, in terms of the necessary checks and balances, it kind of exacerbates some of the general challenges that come with these technologies. And what I've, again, argued in my own personal work is that, in fact, it is the gap between the speed of adoption and the necessary checks and balances that exacerbate some of the challenges that you'll see on the continent. But also, these systems can sometimes be used to, you know, further shore up state uh, surveillance precisely for the misuse of them. Um, And this is kind of illustrated in some of the examples that have kind of come out of Uganda, uh, where, you know, the state is precisely using some of these surveillance systems to kind of crack down on uh, political dissidents. And so what I've at least tried to illustrate in some of my work is that like the unique political arrangements of a given country will then determine how these technologies are used. But if these technologies in particular come into contexts where they are simply uh, weak legal arrangements, then the misuse of them is is highly likely. And to kind of address some of these challenges, it will require not simply a response at the kind of geopolitical level in terms of how we think and engage with Beijing, but it will also include how do we think locally in terms of supporting uh, the promotion of the necessary checks and balances that will ameliorate the challenges that surround, you know, unwarranted surveillance, for example. Okay, so there are a, a lot of points there that I want us to to talk a bit more about. But let's first start, let's go back to the question of effectiveness. You mentioned that the correlation between the adoption of the technology and addressing the needs might not be strictly there. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how effective these systems actually are in addressing the development of public security needs? 
So, you know, for example, you know, when you're procuring, for example, a, a facial recognition system, in some sense, you're presuming a level of uh, technical infrastructure that will be there and necessary. And so, you know, that, you know, would include, you know, necessary safeguards in terms of the biometrical data being collected. And so one has to ask a question there. At at another level, one is presuming, you know, consistent power, which, you know, many African countries in particular struggle with supply of stable power. At, At another level, you're then also presuming that the people who you're surveilling are in fact, you know, you know, the ones who are going to be kind of committing crimes. And, you know, that then presumes that, you know, one has a, a clear sense of where exactly crime will be taking place in, in a given city. And even if, for example, one is unable to identify certain er- areas of a given city to be challenging, one is presuming that crime is really a consequence of being able to make at least crime happens, you know, when the technical gaze is not there. And that sometimes might actually not be the causal realities of crime, i.e. that crime is a rather complex causal link that is not simply contingent on whether or not, you know, one is able to offer a means of mass surveillance. And that, you know, in fact, you know, uh, crime usually is more connected with kind of social economical questions rather than technical capabilities. And so there's a a general gap between, you know, the technical application of a system and the, the actual underlying reasons as to why, for example, somebody might be, you know, participating in, in petty theft. And so to me, you know, much of my work in some sense is really about thinking about those gaps, but more importantly, also helping uh, stakeholders uh, able to address those gaps. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. 
The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. You were talking before about the checks and balances. So what is the legal framework under which the technology is being deployed? What is there and or, or what is missing? I guess it's kind of uh, take a step back, you know, um, if we kind of look into the African continent, which, you know, has over 50 states, generally, you know, it's been, it's been somewhat documented now that about almost 60% uh, of the countries on the continent have some kind of data protection law in place. Uh, for the countries that don't have data protection provisions in place, uh, there are a number of reasons, but many of them in particular believe that, like, uh, you know, a data protection law is not necessary when you simply don't have 
the technical infrastructure to kind of go online. So for many of them, you know, they sometimes read uh, the promotion of, of privacy and particularly the promotion of data protection as a, as a place that is not ameliorating some of the immediate challenges, which is simply closing infrastructural gaps. And for those who do have data protection in place, the, while it's there, it might sometimes not necessarily come into effect. And the reasons for that is that, you know, many of them are, are slow to uh, both adoption and then execution in part because they're unsure about what are the consequences for the application of uh, data protection, specifically for the startup ecosystems, uh, particularly startup ecosystems that are not necessarily robust. And they are slow because there's a general trepidation for sometimes making too much of a large ask for adoption of data protection for companies that you know are particularly struggling. But to kind of then zoom in for a specific example, if we, again, you know, uh, use Kenya as an example, if you look into when were some of these digital uh, surveillance systems were applied, they were applied as, as early as about 2012. In fact, a company from Nanjing in particular was employed to support with the installation of uh, first CCTV cameras and then eventually tracking cameras, and then uh, eventually facial recognition systems across uh, uh, Nairobi's uh, CBD. Their adoption in 2012 was not followed by any really uh, data protection laws that specifically target the, the appropriate use of CCTV cameras and then facial recognition systems. And in fact, you know, there's actually still not actually a national CCTV policy in Kenya, um, and they eventually was a data protection law put in place, but that law only followed several years later, about uh, 2019. And so the data protection law of Kenya is really only, you know, uh, a couple of years old. But even then, I would argue even today that we're not really in the enforcement phase of data protection law. What we are in is that we're really in the promotional phase where the government is really interested in uh, making uh, the public aware of data protection, making corporations aware, and then also asking many of them to slowly start thinking and evaluating how it will be best applied within their given you know, sector and their given environment. And so, you know, there's been a lag in, in the kind of the necessity of checks and balances. And, you know, the, the, the reasons for that general lag at one level have to simply do have to do with the with the speed of technology is and the adoption of them, but it also partly has to do with the fact that many people didn't particularly see it as uh, an immediate challenge to you know uh, civil liberties. Uh, many particular people thought that there'll be a kind of a quick and simple use of these systems, not thinking through actually what are the consequences. Uh, for everyday people. And so what I've been particularly advocating uh, within my own personal work is uh, the need for kind of impact assessments. You know, no impact assessments were done uh, for the first round of the installation of these systems in the context of Kenya. And, you know, I've been asking in particular Chinese companies that are willing to work with state and sub-state actors on these systems to carry out 
some of these assessments um, as a way to effectively ensure that there is a general uh, promotion of, of local interests and civil liberties. So this is a, a really good segue into my next question, which has to do with the risks of deploying this technology. And you were just talking about the concerns around the impact on civic liberties, but there is also another category of risks that has more to do with what we could call technical challenges. So there was, uh, for example, earlier this year, a Wired article talking about Hikvision cameras being kind of accessible by customer support without asking for login information or the fact that they could be set up to identify minorities. So could you maybe expand a little bit on what those challenges look like? Is this being discussed in the countries that, that you study? Um, and if so, what is kind of the narrative around them? Sure, for sure. As I've kind of consistently pointed out in my work, is that you know different vendors have got different vulnerabilities as relates to their products. And the significance of impact assessments, particularly both look at some of the uh, you know broader uh, legal political challenges in terms of the installation of these systems, uh, which we kind of spoke to in the previous question and point, and it also follows up with some of the general challenges of these technologies themselves. And in particular, Hackvision has kind of been traditionally thought to have a series of vulnerabilities that challenge the safety both of data, but also challenges for the individual countries that are procuring uh, these uh, technologies. And so, you know, when we're thinking about challenges like backdoor access, this has been a general theme of discussion within the cybersecurity community and the kind of China Watch community that has connected the proliferation of these systems with consistent challenges, specifically security challenges of these systems. Much of my particular work tries to get at this question a bit more differently, particularly mostly privileging local stakeholders. What is clear from local stakeholders is that they are mostly procuring, for example, uh, Chinese vendors as technologies, in part because of the financial reachability of these systems. Usually a lot of these systems have uh, loans attached to them, and so it makes it a bit easier for African state and sub-state actors to procure them. And impact assessments are not to be found, but also uh, studies of the vulnerabilities of some of these technologies are not to be found. And so in the context of Africa, there have been a couple of breaches on state data that have made um, uh, some people, mostly within the civil society community, quite worried. Obviously, a couple of years ago, there was a a large breaching of of data from uh, the African Union. And that, you know, put a couple of, uh, you know, a number of people uh, alert, particularly in Africa, about some of the vulnerabilities that do come with working with um, uh, with uh, Chinese stakeholders. And obviously, again, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was uh, another discovery of, you know, Chinese hackers trying to get at, you know, uh, local data, particularly local data about loan payments. And so the, the challenge of 
of backdoor access is, I believe, now becoming more prevalent in some of the countries that I study. And they're beginning to start to think about, you know, what are the general best responses uh, to some of these challenges. My particular work in particular has pointed to uh, thinking more critically about supply chain integrity as it relates to some of uh, the procurement and then final use of these technologies. And that would, you know, include, you know, uh, thinking about, you know, who you're procuring these technologies from, whether or not they kind of have a history uh, of having multiple vulnerabilities on their technologies. It will also think uh, more critically about, you know, how they're necessarily installed. And then finally, it would also then include uh, kind of uh, building up your own domestic cyber capabilities uh, to ensure that, uh, regardless of whether or not you know attacks will happen in the future, that you know countries are individually best prepared to deal with them. Um, you know, thus far there's kind of uh, very little work in terms of you know thinking about impact assessments, uh, supply chain integrity, uh, and then you know finally you know thinking a bit more about you know domestic uh, cyber capabilities. Right, but at the moment your options are kind of limited, right? Um, and maybe you can you can make this a bit more clear. If, if you were, for example, a government official, you have to make a procurement decision on surveillance technology right now. What do your options look like? What are the, the general buckets? Do you have a reasonable alternative to, to the Chinese companies? Yeah, you know, this is the, that's the general perennial, you know, challenge, you know, um, in my, in my own kind of uh, work, I've shown that like, you know, about, you know, 70% of Africa's, for example, ICT infrastructure alone is built by Huawei. Many kind of Chinese companies, uh, including Huawei, you know, have um, a significant uh, footprint on the continent, in part because of the kind of early engagement with the continent as it relates to building out ICT infrastructure but also some of the kind of uh, financial options that have been kind of offered to them by the Chinese state, uh, but also, you know, at times to simply the quality and the financial reachability of their products. And so in some sense, you know, they, the proliferation of their systems, you know, has to do with the success of their companies, but also the financial reachability of their products relative to other suppliers outside of China. And so, you know, when you're, you know, a cash-strapped institution uh, or a cash-strapped, you know, ministry, you know, uh, working with uh, a kind of a Chinese vendor always seems like the most obvious, uh, you know, uh, supplier. Now, obviously, working with them does come, you know, uh, at times with financial aid directly from Beijing. But, you know, what I've kind of also pointed out in my own individual work, then, you know, uh, the general assessment should be more than simply whether or not, you know, there's a financial edge to working with them. I also didn't necessarily say this in my kind of previous response, but like, you know, much of the research of this proliferation of Chinese uh, cyber capability tools generally also is thinking critically about, you know, whether or not the mass dissemination of these systems is leading to the recession of democracy that we're seeing in the context of global South countries. And much of my work, in some sense, is also interested in kind of problematizing 
that general Corley presumption where, you know, the proliferation of these systems directly leads to a reduction in democracy. And what I've kind of at least tried to show is that at one level, it is about, you know, the domestic realities of the, of these technologies, which they're coming in, you know, in local contexts where there's simply legal gaps. Um, and it is those legal gaps that are being then further exacerbated by the use of these systems. But it's not always necessarily connected uh, with a kind of a geopolitical uh, motivation of wanting to kind of, you know, re- uh, lead to a, re- a reduction in democracy in, in the global south from Beijing, uh, which is not to say that, like, you know, the un- there is no grand strategy. It's just simply to say that, like, challenges, but also solutions are going to eventually arrive at what are local stakeholders doing. Right. The final section of your report offers some recommendations for how, you know, the US, some of its partners, generally what we would conceive of as the West, um, should respond to this adoption of surveillance technologies in Africa. So I guess my first question is, why do you see this intervention as necessary? Sure. You know, at, at one level, it's simply about, you know, promoting and supporting civil liberties in the global south. At another level, it's really about helping, you know, the United States and its stakeholders understand their interests in the global south, which are both about, you know, helping preserve democratic um commitments and norms, uh, but it's also about, you know, helping them understand uh, why, for example, Beijing and Chinese companies have such uh, a strong hold in global South markets. It's not, you know, simply, you know, contingent on Beijing diplomatic strategy or consistent engagement with, say, African stakeholders, although that is part of the story. You know, Beijing has been quite active in trying to engage with uh, African countries uh, quite consistently for the last several decades. Uh, But it is also partly connected with the companies in in particular who have kind of taken the global south as, uh, let's say, a laboratory of of expansion where the competition in kind of Western markets seemed rather daunting. And so moving towards the global south was almost like a bit of a training ground for them to kind of expand their capabilities and knowledge of of what does it mean to do business uh, outside your home market. And, you know, Africa in particular was a place in which they didn't necessarily always have to deal with fierce competition from Western companies. And so uh, much of their general lessons are, in fact, you know, in terms of being a a large company, were learned um, in Africa. Uh, and so, you know, helping people understand uh, some of those general nuances, both at the level of kind of diplomatic engagement with the global south, but also the corporations and, you know, finally kind of promoting kind of civil liberties was uh, the motivations behind uh, that section of the paper. Right. So it's it's hard to have this conversation and not talk about US-China competition in general. So maybe you could place everything that we've been talking about in that context. Um, how is it a part of it? And how do you see maybe both US and Chinese Africa policy being different or 
you know, taking this issue into consideration? Sure. You know, um, well, obviously, I'd say we're living in the aegis of increasing tensions between uh, the U.S. and China. Um, and in all fronts, you know, they, they seems to be competition. And this competition is obviously going to require a stage to kind of enact itself. And, you know, in my work, I've been particularly pointing out that it seems as though that the global South and in particular Africa is functioning as a stage for competition. Obviously, Chinese companies in particular have been consistently engaging with Africa and uh, have have a particular stronghold uh, on the continent. And so, you know, it might not necessarily be much of a competition if, you know, majority of, you know, the kind of corporate engagement on the continent uh, has to do uh, with Chinese companies. But, you know, there are multiple other ways in which, you know, the, the U.S. has been trying to ramp up its engagement And in particular, you know, I think it's best expressed with the most recent uh, U.S.-Africa Leadership Summit, where, you know, the United States was trying to kind of further engage, uh, you know, African uh, stakeholders. And that, you know, includes both kind of, you know, uh, a diplomatic commitment from them to these African countries, but also support uh, for those African countries particularly as it relates to them addressing some of their own most immediate domestic challenges. And in my work, you know, what is kind of clear uh, on the Africa side is that like, you know, um, many, many of them who are reaching out and wanting further engagement from the U.S. are very much interested in support that will help close some of the traditional infrastructure gaps. And, you know, those infrastructure gaps, you know, range, you know, from simply supporting, you know, road infrastructure all the way to kind of building fiber optic capabilities. And it's within that, it's within those particularities that I argue competition seems to also be heating up. Uh, And while, you know, they might not necessarily be clear competition in terms of, you know, who's supplying your cameras, but, you know, there is competition in terms of sometimes where, you know, loans for individual projects are appearing or, you know, which software companies um, uh, are being used. Um, and so in that sense, you know, competition is, is, being, is being realized. And framing it as, a com- as, as competition might be useful, but it might also sometimes be alienating for kind of African stakeholders. And that's kind of what I was trying to gesture towards um, in, in the paper, it's funny enough, you know, uh, you know, I was having this very similar conversation earlier today with, um, uh, you know, somebody within the ICT ministry here in Kenya, and it became clear to them that, like, they uh, they feel like sometimes they like they have to choose, and choosing for them feels like an uncomfortable position because they'll rather actually cooperate, uh, particularly cooperate in solving some of their most immediate uh, challenges within the ICT space. Um, and so, you know, what I've at least pointed out towards my work is that like, uh, an, you know, an alternative framing uh, that particularly gets to the local nuances uh, that makes African stakeholders feel like less of, of a want to choose and more of a, of a want to cooperate, particularly in addressing their problems, uh, is most uh, attractive and 
will most likely go further with African stakeholders. That was a that was a great point to wrap up, Bulalani. Thank you so much for coming on and for this fantastic conversation. For sure, and you know it was uh, terrifyingly nice to meet you. And thank you for the opportunity uh, to speak with you and your audience. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jan Patia Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. 